Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 24. You will recall that Paul is now being held in Herod's Praetorium in Caesarea, awaiting trial before Tiberius Claudius Felix. We pick up the story in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. It was standard procedure then, as now, for plaintiffs to be represented by a barrister or advocate, and so we meet here a person named Tertullus, who may or may not have been a Jew. Scholars go back and forth on that. He was obviously fluent in Greek and likely Latin too, and he was well-versed in Jewish law and tradition. Verse 2 says, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. The substance of the charge is that Paul is a well-known disturber of the peace, a rabble-rouser and 'er ne'er-do-well. And they appear pretty confident in their claims because they don't bother to present any evidence. Paul, in this trial, represents himself. Verse 10 continues the story. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anybody or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In his speech, Paul solidly refutes the charges that have been made against him. He's not a rabble rouser. He simply worships God according to the way. That's a very interesting description of the Christian faith. D.A. Carson says here, Christianity is more than a belief system. It's a way of living. 
Moreover, it provides a way to God, a way to be forgiven and accepted by the living God. And that way is Jesus himself. I think that's very helpful. I remember a few years ago now, it was trendy for people to say, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. I think the idea there was to reemphasize the behavior side of Christianity as opposed to just the belief side. But as is often the case, I think there was a bit of an overreaction because Christianity is a set of beliefs and a set of behaviors. It's both necessarily and inseparably both. And so we should seek out language and terminology that reflects that. And this term, the way, does that very nicely. It's also interesting to note that Paul says that he worships the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Again, that's fascinating language. I wonder how many contemporary evangelicals would dare to use that language. Now, Paul isn't saying that he believes that the law is saving. He just says that his way of worshiping God accords perfectly with everything written in the law and the prophets. In fact, I. Howard Marshall goes so far as to say that Paul, in these various trials, argues that Judaism, rightly understood, should culminate in faith in Jesus, closed quote. Paul is saying that he's simply following the law and the prophets to their logical conclusion, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm the most Jewish person of all. I'm just going where the Bible leads me. It's hard to argue with that. David Peterson says much the same about Paul's speech. He says Paul defends his way of worship as authentically Jewish. At the same time, identifying implicitly with the Pharisaic interpretation of Scripture in terms of fundamental beliefs, close quote. Now to Felix, this must have sounded very much like an intramural squabble between various factions of Jews, and thus he appears unwilling to take an immediate position. Verse 22 says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Felix claims to need more information, and he does what wise leaders will often do. He reserves judgment. Of course, as Luke tells us, his motives for delaying were mixed, to say the least. But there is often wisdom in simply going slow so as to diffuse tension and gather as much information as humanly possible. Felix is presented as a man who doesn't quite have the courage of his convictions. He was interested in Paul and intrigued by his message, but not enough to risk his position and not enough so as to be averse to the opportunity to profit at Paul's expense. Thus, he left Paul to languish in prison. But as languishing goes, this was languishing with purpose. I love John Pollock's description of this particular imprisonment in his biography called A Life of Paul. He sketches out for us what those nearly two years would have looked like. Now, whether everything he says is accurate or not, I obviously can't say for sure, but it is all possible and even plausible 
he describes those months this way. He says, the wet Mediterranean winter gave way to the hot summer of 58, made bearable for Paul by sea breezes and by permission to talk on the shore or where he wished, chained lightly to a soldier. Aristarchus of Thessalonica accepted the status of prisoner in order to serve Paul. The other delegates had returned to Asia and Europe, except Luke, who took the opportunity for a thorough investigation of the oral and written evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and of subsequent events. Must have been encouraging for Paul. Each time Luke arrived back in Caesarea after long talks with Mary, the Lord's mother, or Mary Magdalene, if she still lived, or Bacchus and the, and the once blind beggar of Jericho, or as they sat together accompanied by Paul's soldier, while Philip the evangelist told of the early days after the coming of the Holy Spirit and described Stephen as he knew him, which Paul could confirm from another angle, closed quote. Again, I can't say for sure whether all that is entirely accurate, but it is all plausible. Some scholars suggest that Paul would have also written letters to the churches during this time, although it's hard to be sure which letters were written when and where. The point is, however frustrating Paul found this delay, it proved very fruitful and very helpful in terms of the long-term health and stability of the church. Verse 27 concludes the chapter when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. From history, we know that Felix was recalled to Rome in the spring of AD 59 after a riot in Caesarea. He narrowly escaped execution and was never again employed in public service, and we know uh, nothing about whether or not he ever converted to Christianity. Meanwhile, the Apostle Paul remained in prison and remained active in his witness to the Lord. His imprisonment, burdensome as it must have been, nevertheless served to edify the church, glorify Christ, and fulfill prophecy. For indeed, the Lord had said, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, this will be your opportunity to bear witness, Luke 21, 12 to 13. Jesus said that, and Paul is living that here in the concluding chapters of the book of Acts. This is all part of the plan. Paul figured out that sometimes your prison is really your platform. Sometimes the suffering you want out of is actually the very mission that God has called you into. Paul made the most of his opportunity. May the Lord give each of us the strength and the grace to do the same. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. 
Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 